Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. And today we're catching up with Dr. Gita Nair, Salesforce's chief medical officer, with an update on the pandemic, including what parents need to be thinking about when it comes to sending their kids back to school and how companies can take the lead in fighting the Delta variant and the resurgence in infections. Joining us to discuss this is Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Executive Associate Dean of the Emory School of Medicine and Grady Health System, and Anish Chopra, co-founder and president of Care Journey, and formerly the first U.S. Chief Technology Officer under President Obama. Welcome to the show, everyone. So, welcome to the show, everybody. Delighted to be with you. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, wonderful. So, Dr. Del Rio, I'd like to start with you. Can you give us an overview of where we are with the pandemic right now? Well, thank you. I think we are, uh, we're not in a very good place, right? We have had, you know, the pandemic in the last uh, several weeks has had a, a significant uptick, primarily through rapid spread of the, of the Delta variant. And we're currently having you know, close to 150,000 new cases per day. We have over 100,000 people hospitalized, and we have reached now uh, 1,500 deaths per day in our country. So, the good news is that it looks like in the last several uh, past few days we are beginning to see this stabilize. So maybe we're going to start, you know, cases beginning to not continue to go up, and neither hospitalizations, deaths are continuing to go up because deaths lag about two to three weeks behind cases. But in a way, uh, we may be reaching that famous peak in, in this Delta surge, and maybe we're going to start coming down. The, the other thing that has been good is we are beginning to see also an increase in, in immunizations. And when you think about people over the age of, of 12 in our country, we have now 62% of the population fully immunized. So there's good news and there's a lot of bad news. And the major message is, is get vaccinated because this is not going to be the last surge we have. We likely have other surges. We'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. You mentioned 12-year-olds and upcoming younger children getting vaccinated. I mean, this is something we're seeing with back to school right now. In, in my own case, my kids started middle school and in the first week there were multiple COVID cases in the school. What are you seeing right now and what should parents be thinking about with kids going back to school? Well, you know, uh, many of us uh, made the mistake of saying, well, you know, kids seem to be less likely to get infected. And and I think kids in the, in the first several outbreaks were less likely to get infected primarily because they stayed home, right? And if you stay home, you don't get infected. But then what happened is during this surge, we're beginning to see children getting infected, and we're beginning to see a lot of infections in young children, you know, those under the age of 12 that are not being able to be vaccinated. And that's where we're seeing a significant increase in cases. And it is related to opening up. It is related to going back to school. But it's also related to schools and school districts where they're not following the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatric recommendations. Because if we are to immunize everybody 12 and under, on, 12 and older who's around kids 12 and under, and we were to have mass mandates in schools and do good ventilation and other things, we can significantly uh, minimize the impact of COVID in children. And the reason we we haven't done that, you know, it baffles me and continues to just upset me a lot because we're putting politics ahead of our children. And that to me is, is really very disappointing. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Anish, it makes me think about this from a policy perspective and drawing on your experience working with the Obama administration. Lots of people are wondering, you know, I saw this morning actually about a federal mandate now that President Biden is 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 doing it, increasing the amount of vaccination that has to happen with federal workers. But why isn't there a, a federal policy and how should we think about that? Well, thank you for the question. And it comes back to the nature of our governance model in the United States. We're a 10th Amendment country mm -hmm. where many of these decisions are deferred to states as much as you possibly can. State and local governments make judgments about, you know, key trade-offs between science and public health, economic growth, in this case, kids and schools. And those judgments are informed by guidance. And so the federal government often issues uh, guidance. Uh, they're not required to be honored. I think Carlos made a very important point that we're seeing variability in implementation of the guidance, mm -hmm. but that is the nature of our system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the challenges we've always had in the Obama administration, I served as chief technology officer, so I swim in my lane, you know, the data and the technology and the information lane. H1N1, uh, we had a, you know, real concern about its transmissibility and, and, and its, you know, potential lethality. And thankfully, that was an area where we, we were uh, dodged a bullet in the sense that it wasn't nearly as lethal, but we didn't have the information. And so one of the challenges, uh, Michael, is to inform policy, you sort of have to have local truth mm -hmm. in order to make those trade-offs realistic. So if you happen to operate a school that's in a high community transmission environment, you might adopt a different set of protections than if you're in a community with low spread. Mm -hmm. in terms of judgments on masking and mandates for uh, vaccination. So you'll have broad guidance, and then you'll have a lot of community-led judgment, hopefully informed by science and local uh, truth. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. G, I'm thinking about this from, as the chief medical officer at Salesforce, thinking about this from a business perspective, you know, how should companies be thinking about this right now? How to communicate with employees, how to develop policy as a, as a company, what should we be thinking about? Sure. So first of all, I won't pretend to have all of the answers, right? This remains my first pandemic, our company's first <laughs> pandemic. So I think, I think leading with that first, because number one, we've learned how important the currency of trust is. And if you want to retain your employees and your customers, you need to lead with trust. And so being transparent in saying, look, for today's moment, this is the best information we have. This is the best way that we see health and safety being a priority, both for our, our employees as well as our customers. So I think leading with that, leading by example, whether it's around vaccinations, testing, access to healthcare for employees, helping customers with their own policies and procedures, and mental health, right? I think that it's really important to remember mental health um, access and, and supporting employees and customers through this. This has been a tremendously uh, stressful time for many folks, particularly now as we think about children being part of the equation for many families wrestling with working and also uh, being parents. So so I think it's really that, Michael, right? Is that, And just recognizing that it's dynamic, right? So policies and procedures of today may not work in tomorrow's environment. So really leading with that dialogue, I think, goes a very long way in today's environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that point that it's dynamic, we've seen, you know, this is going to change. This is a moving situation and decisions are made at one point that aren't valid in another, which doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong or somebody wasn't being truthful. It's just the nature of this situation. And, you know, Dr. Del Rio, back to you. You've said in the past that pandemics end, uh, but right now that feels like a very far off. Do you think this is something we're going to be living with, like the flu? You get your shot every year and we're living with it, or will it end? Oh, you know, again, pandemics will end, but the virus will become 
a part of the endemic viruses. I go back to reminding people of the 19, you know, 17, 19, 19 flu pandemic. But when that pandemic ended, ended that virus remained in the circulation for many, many years until 1958, when that H1N1 virus was substituted by the, by the Hong Kong flu uh, uh, virus. But that virus remained in circulation for many, many years. We had the 2009 H1N1 uh, pandemic, and now that H1N1 virus continues to be in circulation and in fact is part of the vaccine. So I think this virus will become endemic and will be with us for some time. What I see the future being is, you know, I think we're gonna see in the future increasingly, we're gonna see what we're seeing in our country. You're gonna see parts of the world highly vaccinated where you're gonna have small outbreaks, localized outbreaks in, in areas that are not as well vaccinated. And then you're gonna have a lot of the world which is mostly unvaccinated where the disease transmission is going to continue in significant way. And that is a good reminder that in order to make this pandemic end, we need to address the global pandemic. We cannot just be U.S. centric because if we're just U.S. centric, we are simply not addressing the pandemic. And I think the U.S. has a, a tremendous role to play in leading the global response. And I am hoping that we will assume that leadership role because I think it's a critical component. Mm-hmm. You know, Anisha, it makes me think again about you've got, you know, this unvaccinated group for a variety of reasons, but a lot of people are hesitant or refusing to get vaccinated. And it, it kind of goes back to this this idea of this crisis of trust that we have right now, where people aren't trusting the vaccine, they're not trusting the government. What do you see that we can do about that to, this is a very, you know, big question, but about that crisis of trust and how to get trust back and get that information disseminated to the people. Yeah. So, you know, like everything in life, I think we have a portfolio of at least three vectors of change that we must pursue. One, I think, is we need to reassert your caregivers, your primary care doctor, your frontline trusted physicians uh, in the distribution of vaccine and in the conversation around vaccine. So we had some debate about whether we plus up the payments to doctors for administering uh, the COVID vaccine. And I think that's a dial. We have the ability to turn a little bit more. I think generally speaking, uh, individuals will trust their physician on medical recommendations. And so we have room for improvement, I think, in that vector. Secondly, uh, we have this policy question that the Surgeon General has, has really put forward around social media disinformation. And one of the challenges is that you know, we have a scenario where the most popular Facebook video viewed was of someone commenting about a breakthrough infection that resulted in death and some misinformation about the negative effects of, of the vaccine. Now, one of the challenges of this policy debate on social media disinformation is who really should decide? Do you want Facebook internally to decide? Do you want the U.S. government to have sort of a macro list of all the content that you can or can't talk about that feels very 1984? There may be a middle ground, which is that we achieve some kind of multi-stakeholder consensus on what constitutes social media disinformation around the vaccine and to have all stakeholders at the table weighing in and have the industry kind of agree on how it would uh, flag or treat content that is deemed not only, you know, potential purveyor, not, not, not only the content itself, but the purveyors of that content, the account holders, to see what we should do about canceling accounts or constraining the propagation of uh, disinformation. I think the third category is uh, accessibility. And so 
we've done a great job. You can walk into almost any retail pharmacy and get the vaccine. But I do believe that there, if you look at the objective data, underserved communities that may not be subject to disinformation and may not be vaccine hesitant, but just don't have access or to know about what it would take to get the vaccine, we may need to do more on tackling access issues. I feel like we've done a lot for the savvy. You can go to vaccines.gov, you can type in, but large swaths of the population may not be on the internet, may not be connected or aware of these options. And so I think we've got to take this in all three vectors, but to Carlos's final point, I'll leave you here. It strikes me that we need to reach some equilibrium on what is a reasonable amount of COVID activity in the community that doesn't have us worry. But I think at the 150,000 level we're at today, Carlos, I'm guessing we've got a lot of variation, mutation, risk, and that we just can't tolerate the current status quo. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. The, the status quo, where we are right now, is totally unacceptable. I think that, you know, what would be an acceptable level? I think many of us have said, well, you know, we can bring deaths down to about 100 deaths per day, which would put you right around where the flu is. You can bring, uh, you know, hospitalizations to a place that the hospitals wouldn't be overwhelmed and, uh, you know, ICUs would be under overrun and you would not need states like uh, Idaho and, you know, declaring, you know, disaster crisis mode. We need this to be really like the flu, in, in which case we would be at a level that we could continue function as a society. But we're far from there. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we need everybody to get, get on board with this effort. And Anish, what you were talking about, we're bringing all the stakeholders together and taking action. Dr. Del Rio, when you were talking about the hospitals being overwhelmed, is there a role for government to set up, you know, triage hospitals? Should should government be going or or private companies be going to those underserved neighborhoods? you know, with vaccination, uh, uh, mobile vaccination, you know, what are, what, what can we do to mobilize these efforts? Yeah, we, we should definitely get Geetha's perspective on how public-private partnerships might drive this. But I'll tell you from my perspective, I volunteered for Chicago. Uh, the city of Chicago built a data hub that allowed them to pinpoint roughly where all the challenges were. Uh, and the policy lever is as follows. Michael, look at where we distributed the provider relief fund, the billions of dollars that Congress set aside. Unfortunately, most of those went to institutions that were not really driving the kind of clinical transformation and saving the kind of lives that we know we could have saved if we proned early and did all these clinical interventions. And so there was a little bit of a mismatch between doing the right thing conceptually and what we rewarded with cash. And I think in that scenario, if we align the incentives to close the gaps, we might have had a slightly different response. And we have ability to make influence over that moving forward, really rewarding better clinical outcomes, which means finding the underserved communities, getting them, prevent their just the spread of COVID, reward that, and reward if one gets COVID, the outcomes to reduce disease progression with more effective treatments. Rewarding that in our financial system could be a way. But Geetha, I would imagine public-private partnerships have to be the key. You know, there's certainly one part of it, Anish, right? So in the absence of this unified leadership and in the absence of a unified strategy, this is exactly what our CEO, Mark Benioff, talks about, which is that business can be the greatest platform for change. So whether it's public or private or both together, it's certainly an all-hands-on-deck uh, crisis, and, and we need to do more of that. At Salesforce, we're doing much in this regard, whether it's with our partnership with the Gavi Alliance, whether it's in our work across the globe, because as Carlos mentioned, 
You know, this is going to be unfortunately here for years. And it's also going to be the the folks that the haves and the have nots is what we're seeing. Right. And so as we think about equity and the underserved, it's, it's very much the underserved across the globe that we need to make sure we are addressing if we're truly going to get to a place where this is a virus we can live with and go about our lives. So no lack of leadership. I, I would say that many companies are leading in this regard. We've seen Google, Facebook, many folks who have said, you know, we were going to go back to life as normal by the end of the year. And as this situation has become dynamic, have said, nope, stay home, take care of your kids, do what you have to do, get vaccinated. That's how, you know, we're going to do business as a business. So this, these kinds of partnerships need to continue. And we need to continue to also partner um, on leadership, right? Whether it's advocacy, whether it's working with local and regional states at the federal level, having medical and scientific experts, both in the private community and the public community talking and making sure strategies align is really, really critical. And just another another tactic for us to get to the end of this, which is a long way away. But I also think the private sector has a major role to play, for example, modifying the, the sick leave policies. I think we all have gone to work when we've been sick because presentism is a reality. A lot of people cannot afford to be out of work. And, you know, we need to really change that culture that we have. And we really need to make it easy for people to say, look, I'm, I'm sick today. I'm not going to go to work because there's a risk of transmission. And that's really a mentality change that has to happen in our workforce. A hundred percent. And I think hospitals, hospital policies, right? Carlos, our doctors and nurses that come to work sick because they feel so... Uh, oh, we're the worst. We're the worst. We're the worst. So I would say the hospitals need to leave, but absolutely every employer needs to leave. But every resident, every doc, every attending, they push themselves to the limit as we're seeing with physician burnout. But this is a whole different dynamic. You're right. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that at this point, we're still at the point of needing to get vaccinated, needing to manage sort of the the most basic level of this pandemic. But I was thinking about the technical solutions that I haven't heard about as much with contact tracing, with other, you know, uh, technical infrastructure to help us go back. Anish, maybe you can speak to that a little bit around what does that future look like when we do hopefully get a little over the hump here with uh, just getting people vaccinated and and healthier? Yeah, look, uh, when you're putting out this massive forest fire and you're down to, as my friend Farzad refers to as embers, then you can implement the strategies that we know work, which is to say some relatively simple and ubiquitous testing to identify hotspots before they really spread to address the kind of, not lockdown is not the right word, but the kind of more isolation, quarantining in a micro environment get people uh, safer, comfortably at home while they you know, wait out the spread. We have the capacity, we have the tools, we have the know-how on what it takes to constrain rapid growth. And unfortunately, you know, right now we're so variable in America, we have hotspots that aren't really doing the basics and we have low transmission in communities that have built up the muscles to do it well. And so we've got a misallocation a little bit we kind of need political consensus on how to drive like the prioritization of, of um, stamping out this forest fire, which you would have thought we would have had, you know, agreement on many, many months ago. But that will take political leadership. And I think that hopefully, um, well, vaccines did bring us together for a little while. And so hopefully we can kind of go back to after we you know, tamp down the current uh, outbreaks to get back to a new normal, better surveillance, testing and the like. 
I do think when you think about technology, I think the technology we haven't utilized effectively, even this late in the pandemic, has been rapid testing. I mean, I think every access to rapid testing needs to be readily available so people can test themselves. And, you know, they have a contact, they have them testing for schools. You know, I, I think that many of the available rapid tests over the counter are simply too expensive for most of the population to be using. And I think making rapid tests that are readily accessible and available to people would be very transformational. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. We just used a rapid test this morning that was, you know, 30 bucks for that test. I would agree with both Carlos and Anish. And I would also add that telemedicine, as much as it's, you know, seen a boom here during the pandemic, as I think about what the schools are going through, as I think about you, Michael, doing the test on your daughter this morning, right? Folks need help. And sometimes they just need a nurse or a PA or a pharmacist. And of course, the doc, if, if the doc is available. But I don't think that we have gotten people to practice at the top of their license and gotten creative about scaling with virtual resources. And I know we think of telemedicine as a video visit, but telemedicine is a phone call. It's a text. It's an email. It's anything that is reaching the patient where they need at the point of care, which right now is increasingly at home, at school, in places everywhere but the hospital. And I I think we have a lot of work to still do in that regard. Mm -hmm. Is there an opportunity for the federal government to be involved with providing that testing at a lower cost of setting up the infrastructure, the technological infrastructure to be able to test, et cetera? Let me tell you what I think should have happened and continues to not happen. Testing infrastructure cannot be moved, right? So when Boston created a lot of testing infrastructure, but also there was an epidemic in, in Texas and there was not enough testing in Texas or not enough testing in Florida, there needed to be some sort of air traffic control that said, okay, we can take testing you know, samples from this place and move them rapidly up over here test them and send the result back electronically. But we don't have that. So what you end up having is states competing. From the very beginning, we had the federal government tell states, you guys compete against each other. So they were bidding each other for ventilators. They were bidding each other for testing. It's just insane. You cannot allow a system that allows, you know, right now we're all bidding out each other for nurses. Right. It's it's unbelievable that this late in the pandemic, there's not an air traffic controller managing this critical resources. And, and, why is that? Does that <laughs> who's what? How did how did we end up here? We've had two administrations. We we you know we're in a different situation. Anish, do you want to take a pass at that? Well, I actually think that's stabilizing. I think that was a true abdication of duties in the prior administration on this issue. I think that's a, a, a objective fact. I, I try to be you know nonpartisan in my comments, but I just feel like that was an abdication. We have all the authority we need to coordinate you know, effective buying. But I think the way to think about this is Operation Warp Speed was about a financing model to reward an innovative approach to the problem. And that was all role of government. I think, well, public-private partnerships, the government's decision to pay in advance of whatever the product is, that's a policy choice. And so on the range of things one can do to invest, to bring closer to D, you know, the R&D, closer to D to market, that's a natural white space for the U.S. government to help bring, what does it take to get a $2 test into the hands of every American? That is a judgment that can be funded with rewards and incentives. So that's all very possible. So, you know, I'm just going to add to Anisha's answer in saying for me, and Carlos, you'll appreciate this, right, as the two docs on the podcast here. I also think that this is our first pandemic, truly, right, at this level in terms of a global crisis all at the same time. And two, there has just been an absence of science and medical advisors at the table. So, so many decisions were made 
without a real understanding of how complicated this virus was and what the public health implications were globally. And I think we continue to see that happen regionally. We continue to see that play out on the globe. So many folks have underestimated what the medical and scientific community were saying from the beginning. And making sure that we raise the health literacy globally and domestically remains very important. The fact that we let misinformation spread like cancer, right? Because people were so health illiterate. There's illiteracy, but then there's health illiteracy, right? That The fact that folks couldn't understand that a virus was spread when you don't wash your hands or by a simple cough or sneeze and how far that went. I think there's an opportunity here to invest in literacy around your health and, and basic knowledge. And, and as we talk about leadership and businesses, Everyone now has a chief medical officer. Everyone needs a chief nursing officer. We're seeing the importance of science play out in real life. And I think that we underestimated nature on many levels and we should uh, learn from that and move forward. You know, I I mean, I, I agree with you, but I would also like to add that this is a totally novel virus, a new virus. And our knowledge as scientists has been evolving, has been growing. And the problem that I've seen is that many of us have been painted as flip-flopping and unreliable because, hey, you said one thing and now you're saying something different. I mean, you know, at the very beginning, we said, don't use a mask, don't wear a mask because we need them for medical providers. But that was interpreted as you don't need a mask. Then we said, you need a mask. And I think, you know, the communication has changed. This is how science is communicated. But for the general public, they want facts. They want things that are, you know, you can do this, you cannot do this. And that has been really hard. So, so I also think we need uh, literacy in science communication, literacy in understanding, you know, what is the process of science, the process of discovery. But at the same time, we need to train the scientists to be better communicators. And we need to know how to be, how to say, this is what we know today, and these are the unknowns. And, and knowing what the unknowns are, I think is very important. And how are we working to try to solve the unknowns? To me, the, the, the biggest problem in this pandemic has been how populist leaders, and this is not just in, in, in the U.S., but around the world, we've seen, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil, in, in Mexico, uh, the president, and in, in, in England, the prime minister, that have been saying, uh, frankly, misinformation. And that misinformation, it, from, from, from a leadership point, from the bully pulpit that they conduct, really has been very, very hard to deal with because those people have a responsibility to provide adequate information and they have the responsibility to provide the information that is needed. And during a pandemic, to have people like that say, well, you know, uh, yeah, Dr. Fauci says a mask may be useful. You want to, if you want to use it, use it, but I'm not going to use it because I don't believe in them. It has a lot of power. You know, that, that, that influences a lot of people and that changes no matter what we say after that. You have a segment of the population that has already been sort of misinformed and no matter what you do, you're not going to change that. So I think also the politicization of public health to a point of, of destroying public health, in my mind, has really been one of the one of the sort of tragedies of this pandemic because regaining trust is incredibly difficult to do once you've lost it. And and I think we you know we lost trust a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I think this is uh, this crisis of leadership and crisis of trust that we have right now, which does open up this opportunity for the private sector and and for companies. And I I wondered, Dr. G, is there an opportunity for companies to come together for, you know, basically who's going to argue on the other side? 
you know, there are endless opportunities, unfortunately, because there are so many uh, pockets of, of leadership lacking uh, as we look through, uh, you know, the regional landscape as well as the, the global one. So, you know, 100 percent, I think there's opportunities for, for businesses to collaborate, cooperate, again, making sure they have medical and scientific advisors at the hip, right? Helping them make decisions, whether it's for advocacy, whether it's leading health and safety initiatives for employees, for customers. But I, I think we have seen that, right? We, we continue to see that. We see businesses saying, look, we're happy to serve you dinner. We're happy to serve you a meal, but we need to see your vaccine card, right? Or you need to present a negative test within a certain time period. So I think we are seeing businesses doing that. The more we lead together is really where we make the biggest impact on this virus, right? So there are endless opportunities here. But I do think Carlos is right, which is that it all goes back to trust. And the foundation of trust is good communication, no matter what relationship you're talking about, your spouse, your doctor, uh, your employer, it it leads with good communication. and, And certainly, the medical and scientific community are not known for that, and we have worked to improve. But I also think that if the government makes an effort to invest in that, you know, I'd love to see an army of TikTok doctors and, and using social media and flipping the dynamic of using social media to spread good information and fact-based information. Give Carlos a, a, a channel on YouTube, right? We need more of that, not less of that. And that's where I think businesses can also lead, which is giving medical scientific community a voice because that's a big part of it is there is no pulpit for doctors right there really isn't it's one-on-one patient care and that's where so much of this is happening and falling down because that doesn't scale but i would say that i have been honestly impressed about this pandemic about how good the private sector the corporate sector has been throughout the pandemic and i have had the opportunity to work with many companies even early on in the pandemic you know with the NCAA in, in canceling the Final Four back in March of 2020 and being involved in that decision and, and working with, for example, Delta Airlines and many other corporations. And I've been impressed about how they have put safety of their employees and of their customers first, and they have implemented policies and they're doing things and they're still doing things that are actually putting public health at the center. And I think corporate America, many areas of corporate America have finally understood what what I think many still haven't understood uh, stored out there, that is not public health versus the economy, that you need good public health for the economy to work, that in order to, to your business to be successful, you need to provide safety to your employees and to your customers. And that to me has actually been one of the eye-openers of this pandemic is how corporate America really has responded and continues to respond, creating policies and t- making some of the really tough choices in order to provide safety for their employees and safety for their their customers. You know, Tyler Perry that I've worked with since the very beginning from early on, he said, I want to continue my business. I cannot shut down my productions. I, you know, too many people depend on me to support their families. How can we do this safely? And we implemented a process of testing and quarantining and a bunch of things, you know, and bringing people in for a bubble and creative bubbles. And he was able to continue his business and giving people jobs and continue employing people because we implemented the necessary procedures for him to do what he needed to do. So I also think we in public health have learned that it's not just telling people what you cannot do. We have to tell people how to do things because saying, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. I come from the world of HIV. 
abstinence-only education doesn't work. Telling people don't have sex does not decrease HIV transmission. You have to tell people risk reduction. And that approach, I think, is something that many in public health have still to embrace. And I think that's a lot of the tension that we continue to see between, oh, if we listen to public health, we are destroying the economy. No, actually, you can do public health very well and support the economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a great point in telling people they can't do something. We see exactly what we're seeing in response from, from the public, where people are just going to reject that. You know, Dr. Dobry, I'm curious about sources for information where, you know, because you've had the opportunity to provide that kind of information to these corporate customers or uh, partners. Where can people go right now to get good information to to be able to understand how to set things up and how to follow along? Oh, you know, I think there's a lot of really good information. I think the CDC has really done a great job updating their website and having all sorts of information in there that is really, really very good. I mean, they have the science briefs around school opening. They have all these different things that, that I think are really good to look at. The Infectious Society of America has a very good website. I think there's a lot of organizations that have very good information, but you still need that information, when you are an executive in a corporation, when you're the HR director, when you're the, you know, you need that information translated to you. So I think that's when you need to then rely on epidemiologists, infectious disease specialists, others that can speak to you at the level that you understand. In other words, they can translate the evidence into policies that work for the corporation and that work for your business. And they may be a little different depending on your businesses. I mean, the policies you implement for a cruise line industry may be very different from the ones you implement for a nursing home company. But you need to understand the business and then translate the policies and apply them and learn as you're doing so and get the buy-in of all the, the stakeholders. So it's not only having the information, it's really translating the information into something that is practicable and feasible. Because if you go to a company and you say, you have to do all these things, otherwise you can't function or you have to close down, or if you have one case, you're gonna to have to close down for the next 10 days. Well, they're going to say, thank you very much, but I'm not going to do that. Right, right. And I'll just add to that, Michael. I'll, I'll say that you need translators and then you need ambassadors to get that message out, right? For big multinational companies such as ours, there's there's cultural, there's language, there's there's so many aspects, there's gender, you know, the, the messenger matters, right? And, and making sure that the message is heard, part of that is is the messenger and of course, um, how they relay it. But I, I think we're seeing that also play out uh, throughout the globe. You know, when Gita and I were, were talking yesterday, we were preparing for the interview, we talked about the polio vaccine and where everybody just lined up. There was not, it, it seems like there was not really a question uh, and all the hesitancy and misinformation around that. Do we ever see it getting back to that where it, there's just going to be the trust yet yeah, this vaccine's here? I mean, there is that in a particular part of the population, but there's so much hesitancy. Do we see that changing anytime or, or what is going to change that? You know, it's, it, I don't know what's going to change. I think that, to me, vaccines have been some of the most amazing, you know, discoveries of our lifetime. They have changed our lives so much. I remember, you know, talking to my dad about how, when he was growing up, you know, people were so afraid of polio. I mean, you know, you were not allowed to go play here. You were not allowed to do this because polio was so, so prominent. Things that we never suffered as kids, that we never saw. Uh, I saw my kids... I know I had measles as a kid. My kids didn't because of vaccines. My kids had chickenpox as children. Their children aren't going to get the chickenpox vaccine, so they're not going to have that. I mean, we have seen so many diseases essentially disappear as major public health problems as a result of vaccination. I'm a big fan of vaccines. I think the vaccines have changed the way we behave. And, 
you know, as I said, I research, my focus has been HIV. I wish we had an HIV vaccine because that's what we need to end, end, end the pandemic. And, you know, we're not going to end it by treating everybody. We're not going to end it by, by doing other things. We need vaccines. So, so to me, having a vaccine for this infection and this such an effective vaccine is like, why are we not using it more? I mean, I get very almost upset when I think that we, we live in a country where there's there's abundancy. There's plentiful of vaccines. You know, 95% of the population lives within five miles of a place you can get a vaccine. The vaccine is free. It's accessible. And in the meantime, you know, 90% of the global population cannot get a vaccine and would like to get one. And, and that to me also creates, uh, I would say, you know, a lot of anger in me because it's a little bit of, a, of an American exceptionalism, right? We have all these vaccines and we reject them when people around the world are desperate to get a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a great look for America there, <laughs> you know. Um, and I'm curious if this vaccine, maybe it's just a, a, the nature of time, which is uh, this will be a vaccine that once it's fully authorized for younger children that you're going to get just like measles or chicken pox in, in the future. And we're just not quite there yet. But in, you know, five years or 10 years, that that's where we're going to be. Do, do you see that? playing out that way, Dr. G? I think so, Michael. I mean, look, we, we also forget, I mean, I, I was in training at the time of the HIV epidemic and, you know, to see HIV now become a chronic disease, to see breast cancer become a chronic disease, we forget how awesome actually medical advancements are. And, and, and the fact that we have developed so many vaccines in such a short amount of time, it's, it's tremendously inspiring for me as a physician. I think it is unfortunately lost on, on so much of the lay public with the dynamic we're in with, with all the misinformation. But I do think we are going to get to a place where this is chronic, where we all forget how how terrible this has all been and how a simple vaccine could move us forward to getting back to our, our lives as we know it from before. And I also spent my childhood in India. So a lot of what Carlos is saying resonates with me. Polio was a really big deal. You know, I have grandparents, relatives that, you know, uh, suffered many chronic issues from polio. And so we are incredibly privileged to live here domestically in, in the U.S. And I would just hope that we don't forget, you know, I, I think before we know it, this actually will become something chronic that we do figure out how to live with. But the only person standing in our way is ourselves, right? My number one message, I think, to our audience today is that this pandemic ends with you and me, right? Go get vaccinated. Go get someone else vaccinated. Go help someone you don't know abroad get vaccinated. That's all we got to do. I mean, that's truly all we got to do. It's, it's not a tall ask, uh, but we need to start and we need to all start together. Yeah, when, when people say, when will the pandemic end? And I say, it's, it's really up to us. It's up to you. The more we do the right thing, the, the sooner we're going to end the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad we got some extra time. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. And Dr. Gita Nair, thank you. Dr. G, our Chief Medical Officer, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Dr. Del Rio. That was Salesforce's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Gita Nair, and Executive Associate Dean of the Emory School of Medicine and Grady Health System, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, and Anish Chopra, co-founder and president of Care Journey and the first U.S. Chief Technology Officer under President Obama. Thanks for listening today. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. 